Good evening, everybody. Evening. It's great to see all of you. If we haven't met, my name's Ashley Matthews. I'm the education pastor here on the west side. Really cool to have all of you here with us for night church. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. Daniel's in the Old Testament, right after the book of Ezekiel. And we've been studying there for the last number of weeks. <clears throat> we'll continue there tonight. We'll be in chapter 4. Um, we typically do not read this much of the Bible during our uh, sermon time, but we have been reading long stretches of Scripture, and that will be the case again tonight. We're going to start reading in verse 24. And this is um, the second half of, of the chapter, and what we're not going to read is um, the bit of the chapter that tells about a dream that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And he has a dream, and he asks Daniel to interpret uh, the dream for him. And so where we're picking up uh, in the story is Daniel's interpretation of that dream. This is verse 24. We'll read, and then we'll pray. See what the Lord has for us. Verse 24, Daniel says, This is the interpretation, O king. And it is a decree of the Most High that has come upon my Lord the king. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. You shall be bathed with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals, and gives it to whom he will. As it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be reestablished for you, from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed, so that your prosperity may be prolonged. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, Is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the animals of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society, ate grass like oxen, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails became like bird's claws. When that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored the one who, li who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, What are you doing? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my lords sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are truth and his ways are justice. And he is able to bring low. 
those who walk in pride. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for this place. Thank you, God, for the people in this room. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your, your spirit here with us. Oh, there is so much that we bring into this room with us that we're um, each carrying, things that we're worried about, hurt by. Over all of those things, Lord, that would beg for our attention, pull at our hearts and minds, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to lay your hands of peace on us. God, allow us to be here and be with you. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that specifically through this story that you would work in a way that helps us to see Jesus, to hear you, Lord, as you would have us to hear you. All that stands between us and a a story that is in so many ways very far and removed and other. We ask you, God, be at work, draw us close to you. Help us to hear and see. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So for the last number of weeks, we've been um, studying the book of Daniel. And we've called this uh, study, uh, a study on the faith of the church. And that is because uh, Daniel, as many of you know, if you've been around or been listening um, or read the Bible before, Daniel um, was a young Jewish kid who, um, along with thousands of other Jews, was rounded up in the 6th century and uh, taken to Babylon um, after the fall of Jerusalem. And... um, Daniel finds himself and his friends um, stationed in the royal palace alongside uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And um, what we're meant to know, uh, sort of kind of in the, the context of, of a story like this, is that um, that should have been exactly the place where Daniel's faith um, and every other Jew's faith went to, to die. <laughs> Babylon is where your faith in God goes to die. <laughs> um, Babylon is not the place where you grow in your faith, um, let alone lead other people around you to grow. Um, that was literally true uh, historically, and it's also sort of in the Bible symbolically true. Babylon becomes this sort of like symbol with a capital S for the place where it's really hard to have faith. And um, that was that was literally and historically true. What's also literally and historically true is that sort of against all odds, in the years and the centuries following the Jewish exile, so after the Jews were told they could go home, there were Jews who stayed in Babylon. And Babylon became um, a center for, um, for religious thought and life, one of, one of the major centers uh, in the world uh, then and now, in a kind of way that's like makes you scratch your head, like, how did that happen? And so not only did Babylon not, in the exile, not put an end to Jewish faith, but it actually thrived there. Uh, some of the greatest Jewish seminaries in the world were founded in Babylon. The Babylonian Talmud was written in Babylon. And sort of like, that's a historical anomaly. Like, how did that, how did that happen? Uh, and it, it makes you wonder. And then you read Daniel's story, and you see a sort of similar thing happening. Not only does Daniel's faith not, like, wither and die, 
But something happens to Daniel in Babylon. He grows, he matures, and his faith grows, like evolves and thrives, so that like he becomes more who he's meant to be and also like has his circle of influence increases. And so we've been asking ourselves here at Trinity, what kind of faith flourishes in, in Babylon? Because according to the New Testament, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are um, in effect exiles now as well because we belong to the kingdom of heaven. That's ultimately our home. It's where we're meant to be. That's We're citizens of this place that we don't actually right now um, see around us all the time anyway. It gets really hard to see. And in that way, our situation is similar to Daniel's. And so the question is, do we have the same kind of faith um, as exiles in our sort of Babylon, in our particular cultural moment, um, as Daniel had? And what, what even is that kind of faith? How do you, how do you get it? And so I've been thinking about that a lot as I've been sitting with Daniel's story. Because Babylon may be, for you, like 21st century American culture. It could also be um, just something you're going through a sort of season of your life that has been um, really hard and made faith really, really hard. Because there are long stretches of our life, seasons of our life, um, that sort of work against our faith at every turn. Some of you have already had a season like that. Some of you have not yet and will <laughs> enter into them. And so it, it can be like a both and. And so the question is, well, how do, how do I have Daniel's kind of faith in that moment? Um, in this story... The first part of the story that we read, um, Daniel's interpreting this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. The part that we didn't read was about the dream itself. And so I want to tell you about this dream that he has. And then the first, the first point, the first sort of observation that I have about this story is, is connected to this dream. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar dreams um, about a giant tree, a cosmic tree, actually. Uh, this tree is so huge that its boughs go up into the heavens and its roots extend all the way down into the underworld. And its branches um, go out all over the whole world so that, like, every living thing um, takes shelter and shade under its branches. It's a huge cosmic tree. And uh, in the dream, an angel commands the tree to be chopped down, but to leave the stump, the stump and the roots, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he goes to his guys, and his guys can't figure it out. And so then he comes to Daniel, and he's like, Daniel, what does it mean? And Daniel says, in effect, um, well, I've got good news and bad news. Good news is, I know what this dream is about. <laughs> the bad news is, you are the tree. <laughs> um, which is bad news because, of course, the tree gets cut down. Uh, Daniel goes on to say, your kingdom, your influence, O king of Babylon, is like a kind of cosmic tree. Um, the world looks to you for shade and shelter and that sort of thing. Um, but you're going you're gonna to be cut down for a time, for a seven times, seven years. Until you are, the text says, until you learn that heaven is sovereign. Sort of the, the point of it. And so here's the first thing that I want to say um, about this dream. If you've been reading in, in Daniel and if you're familiar with the book at all, dreams are just like everywhere. Um, Daniel is known for his interpretation of dreams. It's like his, he has many gifts. He's very good looking and very talented. Um, but one of his primary gifts is his ability to interpret dreams. And uh, he's known for that, right? And so the first um, half of the book is, is a lot to do with dreams. And then the second half of the book is entirely um, devoted to recounting Daniel's visions. He has four visions and they get recounted in the last half of the book. And so you sort of can't escape it. 
all over the whole story. And it made me wonder, I think we're meant to wonder, what is the significance of that particular gift? Uh, Namely, the ability to dream and interpret dreams. Why would someone like Daniel, as an exile in Babylon, be endowed with that gift at a moment like that? Like, what's the significance? What's the relationship between that gift and the kind of faith Daniel had? Because I think there is one. In other words, what's the deal with dreams? Why do they matter? And so I've really been thinking about that um, for, the, for the last week. And, uh, you know, so what are dreams, right? Dreams are literally a dream is a night vision. A dream is something that you see when it's dark in your sleep. Um, for some of you, um, you have crazy dreams really cool dreams that you're, it would appear, you know, you're surrounded by darkness and um, you appear to be sleeping and at rest, but like inside, you know, you have access to whole worlds. Like some of you have flying dreams. Anybody have flying dreams? I've always wanted to have a flying dream. I am not the person who has those kind of dreams. I am the kind of person who has dreams. Like I come to do things like this and don't have pants. Like that's, those are my dreams. Or dreams that like, you know, you're in school and there's that one class that you forgot you were in. You ever had that dream? Yeah, it's a whole semester and you get it's exam time and everybody looks at you like, where have you been? We've been here all along, you know? That's, that's the dream of my life. I don't ever have the flying dreams, but people do. Um, you have like this whole inner world that you know and that you can like go to. And so in that way, I think, maybe dreams are like a really perfect metaphor for faith. Particularly the kind of faith that you have in a Babylon-like place. Because according to Hebrews, faith is what? Faith is the conviction of things unseen. Which means in effect then that faith is the ability to like look into darkness, something that's empty, where there isn't anything, and you have a sight that no one else maybe has immediately. That you're able to kind of look through the emptiness and the darkness onto the other side of it and see either what's really there or what could be there. That's sort of like metaphorically true of faith and dreams. I think, for example, it's what Dr. King meant when he said, I have a dream. You know, maybe he literally had a dream of the Red Hills of Georgia, you know. But I suspect that when he said that, what he, what he meant was, I'm able to look into the darkness of this present moment and see through it onto the other side, something that should be like God's future. And that that's faith. It takes faith to do that. It takes faith to, like Daniel, stand in Babylon and be surrounded by the gods of Babylon, Marduk and Bel, and all of the palaces that Nebuchadnezzar built and look it all out at all of that and say, I belong to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is my home. Jerusalem was a pile of rubble based on what everybody could see. It takes faith to look at Nebuchadnezzar, king of the world, the cosmic tree, and say, you are aching, but you are not aching. And that maybe the whole point of Daniel's story is that the ability to dream, having faith, is like dreaming in the dark. That if you're going to have an exile faith, it's going to be a lot. It's going to take a lot of like looking into emptiness and darkness and asking God to help you see what is on the other side of that. The truest thing. 
So for us, it means being able to look out at Atlanta in 2020 and say, yeah, I see and I hear all that, but like I belong to the kingdom of heaven. And I can look into this moment and I don't have to feel anxious or mad. I can just like do justice. Do what needs to be done. I'm going to build for my home. And so what I want to say to you is that I, I think that you're made, you're meant to dream of home. To dream the dreams of, of heaven. And I mean that like metaphorically, but also literally. Um, I think Christians are meant to dream dreams from God. Um, so prepare yourself. We're about to talk about dreams for a minute. And like from as like gifts from God. It's been a weird night. We've like clapped. And then we hugged for a minute. You know, now we're going to talk about, talk about dreams. Um, I, I want to say, say this firstly, before we talk about dreams. Um, when I came to this church as, um, as a pastor, I was coming out of seminary and um, I loved knowing things. I still like knowing things. Um, but I, I, my primary way, then and now, of like hearing from the Lord was through study. So I just want to say, like, that's, if that's you and you, dreams make you very nervous, like, I'm with you. I get it. I also want to say, though, there's a pretty strong biblical case for the role of dreams and the importance of dreams from, like, cover to cover of the Bible. I have a hard time arguing against the legitimacy of dreams. We've been having them for a long time because that's what people of faith do. They have to be people who, like, see past a thing, right? Um, so I just, it matters to, uh, to me that you, that you know that when someone who was wiser um, and more mature in their faith came to me and said, like, this is a really beautiful way of hearing from God. There are also um, really powerful, more immediate ways to hear from the Lord and that you can do that without becoming a crazy person. It doesn't make you crazy. It just means you're Christian. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, I should try that out. Um, dreams have been, it just like gave me permission to acknowledge the way that God had been working in my life for a long time. Um, and there was a great deal of freedom and liberty and, and to be honest, like fun that's come with that, being able to know God that way. And so that's available to you. You need to know that. As an exile, you're meant to dream the dreams of home. And I mean that metaphorically and I mean that literally. And that maybe if we started wanting and asking for dreams of home, of heaven, that that might, I think, would be a really countercultural thing to do for two reasons. There are like two legitimate reasons I think that's a really powerful thing to do in this cultural moment. And here's one, first one, is that if you are desirous to like hear from God through your dreams, um, it will, I believe, inspire or renew a passion for God's word in you. Because... Um, we go to the Bible to, like, shape and inform our dreams. The images and the stories there and the way that we hear from God, it, like, settles into your psyche um, and shapes your dreams. I, I just want to say on this note in particular, like, if you're going to try this out, and I would, I'm serious about this. Go home. You try it out. You try out the dream thing. But you're going to have weird dreams that mean nothing, right? Like, that's just 
my pants dreams just mean I'm anxious about stuff sometimes. And that's like, okay, the more that we do this, the better we get at being like, that was weird. And I just think like, thank God that I have a a psychology that is able to process my anxiety in a way that's healthy, you know, and like offload some of that junk while I'm asleep. That's really great. Um, Thank God for our brains. Uh, And then there's this, you know, there are these other dreams uh, that I'll have, that people have. And when a Bible-believing, like reading Christian comes to me and said, I've had a dream, I pay attention. And over and over and over again, they've played really significant roles in my life. Um, So if that isn't true for you yet, somebody should tell you it can be. You may have a gift you don't know you have. God may want to say something to you. And if the Bible's really hard for you or other ways are really hard for you, maybe give that a shot. The second reason I think it's a really countercultural thing to do is because if you're desirous to have more dreams, um, you'll want more sleep. And I don't know that there is, maybe there's nothing more countercultural in our particular moment in like 21st century America than insisting on sleep. Do you know what I'm saying? We're just like increasingly sleepless. We sleep less and less and we pride ourselves on like how little sleep we get. Oh, yeah, I'm able to run five miles a day and do all the things that I need to do and look this good and I only slept three hours and I feel great. Killing it. <laughs> and for, like you, what we're saying is, if I can become increasingly more robotic, the more I become like a machine, the more I become the thing that my culture would very much like for me to be, a robot, a machine. Which is literally what happens in this story. Nebuchadnezzar's humanity is taken from him. Because of his obsession with his culture. So sleep is a thing. And apparently, not only we're sleeping less, we're dreaming less in turn. So there's a new study that came out. There's all kinds of science, uh, credible science on, on dreams, of course. And, but um, there's a new study that came out on, on the dream loss and its effects. They call it a silent epidemic of dream loss. And um, the writer of this particular study had this to say, if you're not having and remembering dreams, you're probably not experiencing the correct type and level of REM sleep. And if you're not experiencing proper REM sleep, you're opening yourself up to a whole host of emotional and physical health issues, including irritability, depression, weight gain, hallucinations, memory troubles, immune system breakdowns, and even a loss of spirituality, which I thought was really interesting. What if the most like radically rebellious thing you could do as a Christian was insist on getting sleep? And before you go to sleep saying to God, if you have something to say to me, I would really like to hear it. Help me, Lord. Give me ears to hear. Help my spirit to hear you while asleep. And what if you did? Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, its labors labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, its watchmen watch in vain. It is in vain that you stay up late and rise up early, eating the bread of anxious toil. For the Lord gives his beloved rest. 
And there is nothing more countercultural than that sentiment, I promise you, in our particular moment. Because everything around me is telling me I must do it all and have it all. So who has time to rest? Who has time to dream? The next part of the story um, is the fulfillment of uh, Daniel's interpretation of of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's walking out on the rooftop of his palace. And like another uh, famous uh, Bible king, he drinks his own Kool-Aid. Becomes a little power drunk up there, you know, looking out at all that stuff he did. And he's like, that's really, I did it for me. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was actually a, a, a very boastful person. We have all these engravings from ancient Babylon where he just literally wrote paragraphs, paragraphs about how awesome he was, which is pretty great um, to think about. And um, he loses his mind, according to the story. He loses his mind and in turn his humanity and spends seven years um, as an animal. And so um, what I want to say to you is that, this is a weird story, but a a number of years ago, a long time ago, actually, when I was younger, um, I believe that the Lord gave me this story to help me understand or make sense of um, something that happened to someone I love very much who was also a person of a considerable amount of influence and power who just refused to acknowledge his limits. And because he couldn't acknowledge his limits as a person, he became less and less a person over time. And I think there's a kind of parabolic warning in that, you know? So I want to I say this to you, and I'm, I'm going to read it to you because I am. The ability to recognize and live within our limits makes us more human and ultimately more like God. An inability to recognize and live within our limits makes us less human and ultimately more like beasts. Pride isn't just something you feel. It's like if you're sitting there and thinking, like, I would never, I would never, I would never say that out loud, for one thing, even if I thought it. I would never say it out loud. Pride isn't just a feeling. Pride is an inability to acknowledge and honor your limits as a person. When you just, like, can't accept that you have limits, that you're finite, that that there is a limit around what you can do and should do, what you can have and should have. And the reason that that's so hard for so many of us to accept is because that is not what Babylon wants us to think. Babylon doesn't tell me there are limits around what I want, what I can have, and who I am. My culture encourages me at every turn to believe that I can have whatever I want, whenever I want, and as much of it, and I can do whatever I want. And the pursuit of this is robbing us of some of our humanity. Because the more that we transgress those boundaries, those limits we put around us, it's like it just becomes something we do. We become robotic, machine-like in our pursuit of those things. We don't even know why we're doing it anymore. We just feel like we have to. It's just a compulsion. And if there's a warning, I think, in a text like this, it's like pay attention to that compulsion and where it's taking you because it's probably not somewhere you want to go. 
that maybe, like this, there's a psalm, Psalm 16, where the psalmist says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And that's a really sort of like a revolutionary thing to say. In other words, I'm good where I'm at here. Good with the limits of my skill set. Did you know that you don't have to be good at everything? You don't. You don't have to be good at everything. You don't even have to be good at the things you really wish you were good at. If you're not, it's okay. You're good at what you're good at. And that person next to you is good at the thing that maybe you really wish you were good at. And maybe if you learn to accept your limit, you could learn not just not how to be envious, but to really celebrate good in other people and in yourself. Like really come to appreciate who you are. Maybe the reason some of us don't like ourselves is because we're looking at the limits that God has put around us and rather than saying that's good, we see them as bad. And so we can't love who we are. Embracing the limits around your person is a way of just coming to terms with the good thing God has done in your life. 50 hours is a of a work week is a limit. It's a limit for me. And just because I can work 80 doesn't mean I should. And for me as a Christian, I should not. Because Babylon's going to take up as much space in my life as I let it take up. Sleep is a limit. Christian community is a limit. I have to have it. I have to have it. I have to have people who can pray for me. Whether I want to hang out with them all the, all the time or not, I need to be able to look other Christians in the face who believe in the resurrection of the Son of God and who will pray for me because I'm trying to do stuff out there that I need the help of the Holy Spirit to do. So you need them in your life too. That's a limit for you. And that's going to mean that you have to figure out how do we negotiate those limits? How do we live within them? And I believe the Lord wants to help us do that. It's the last thing I want to say. There is no good thing that you must have that you have to transgress a God-given boundary to get. There is no good thing that you have to have that you have to transgress a God-given boundary to get. And if we can just look at like the tree of life, you know, like in the Garden of Eden and say, there's a reason that that boundary exi exists. God put it there. So I'm going to stay here because the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I pray that you would like try to figure that out with the Lord, what that looks like for you and your faith these next few weeks. Let's stand together if we can. Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.